A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by Hollywood Suite's very own film and content specialist, Cam Maitland, and the programmer of the Neon Dream Cinema Club, Brendan Ross. The best disaster movies are the ones that when the disaster happens, you generally will get a holy crap reaction from your audience. Or if you have a bunch of morbid weirdos watching the movie, you get a holy crap reaction. Now, usually they boast wild special effects of varying effectiveness, a large ensemble of recognizable character actors from several generations of movie stardom, and, of course, a high body count. The 70s saw a big boom in these films, starting with the granddaddy of one of our movies today, Airport 70. But why did audiences dive headlong into disasters well into the end of the decade? Cam, I think you can probably answer this one. Yeah, I mean, there's a people question it, obviously. And uh, you you know me, I love to like look up the first disaster movie is 1901's Fire. (laughs) Fire? uh, Is there an exclamation point? Yeah, I believe there is. You can watch it on YouTube. It's it's actually quite boring because it's just a very realistic portrayal of fire (laughs) firefighters. But it's like Victorian firefighters, so it's kind of cool. And there's pretty good effects considering they burned down a house. (laughs) Um, But no, uh, so yeah, 70s, uh, obviously there's theories. Uh, I think a lot of people think that it's Vietnam, kind of, like the... Essentially, that people were just stuck in a world that they could not control. And these disaster movies are mostly about kind of people coming together in community and overcoming, like, acts of God. Um, so that they're, they are kind of, as much as there's all this death and stuff, uh, they are kind of, like, affirming. And they're like, hey, maybe you can overcome uh, these impossible odds. But I also think that there's something to be said that, like, disaster movies for, like, the 40s to the 60s are often World War II movies. And I think World War II movies kind of outstayed their welcome to a certain point. Uh, And then also people point to the fact that these movies worked so well in the 70s because you had the end of the golden age of Hollywood. So you had all these amazing actors uh, sitting around waiting for projects. So you could get these ensemble casts. Like, even now, it's kind of hard to imagine... The equivalent people are just still acting. Movies, Pretty much, right? yeah. We don't have that generational <laughs> yeah. gap anymore, really. No, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, I feel like Brendan, you're a you're a big '70s man. Do you have any theories as to why people liked disaster movies in the '70s? Uh, I mean, I, I do think that it was like you said, it was an age of movie stars, which we don't really have anymore. So it was a perfect excuse to get a bunch of bankable movie stars together and have you automatically have those big dramatic moments that you can give them, whether they're, you know, being heroic, whether they're being scared, whether they're, you know, falling in and out of love, whether they're, uh, <laughs> you know, avenging somebody who died or, or uh, being sad about somebody who <laughs> who did die. Yeah. Uh, there's just, there's a lot of good opportunities for, for dramatic hijinks. Yeah, I mean, the conflict is built right in, right? Like, all the yeah. stakes are automatically as high as they can possibly be. It's just wild. Mm-hmm. Like, when you go back and you watch Airport 70, which we'll be discussing Airport 77 and more of that, um, the disaster doesn't actually happen till the very end. The plane isn't hijacked until the very, oh. very end. All of it is just watching these, like, machinations of what happens at the airport and Dean Martin hitting on women and having affairs because that's what he does. 
does in every single movie. And it's yeah. and, and what's I thought find interesting and, and Brendan, I want to throw to you in a second here, is the worst ones are the ones that now are watchable, are the ones that are like super fun and you're like, I can't believe that just happened. Sure. They're very big on killing children, like no shame whatsoever. Oh. It's wild. Brendan, like what appeals to you as a modern viewer about these these movies from the 70s? Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely excess is, uh, is the ingredient that makes them watchable now. Uh, and I think a lot of the ones that were, that did get nominated for a lot of Oscars in the 70s, uh, those are the ones that are pretty boring now because <laughs> mm-hmm. they do yeah. lean into, I think it's worth saying that like uh, audiences were more into like the hangout vibes and just seeing, you know, these movie stars just kind of like doing their thing. Um which now that we don't really have that kind of affectation towards them, it's it's a little, it yeah. feels a little dry and kind of stiff. So the ones that were rejected because they were completely ludicrous and don't follow any kind of, <laughs> that don't follow any kind of real logic, uh, those are the ones that are so much more fun to watch now. Oh, 100%. And I, I think uh, there's a few, too, that are still actually effective. Um, you and I are big fans of the Poseidon Adventure, as listeners will know great from movie. last season. Yeah. It's a great movie. And even... Probably the, the best, really, of this Red era. Buttons made me cry in that one. Really? <laughs> Gene Hackman yeah. kills me in that movie. He's so yeah, good. he's very charming. Oh, and, of course, Shelley Winters. Who doesn't love Shelley Winters? But, again, there's your generation of various actors, right? Like, who mm. knew that you'd be like Shelley Winters, Gene Hackman, and Red Buttons, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, totally wild. I think it's also like, I think people really, really got excited by watching these stars, especially like in the case of Shelley Winters, like in, an, an aging movie star going through these like elaborate stunts and uh, really like giving some like physical performances mm-hmm. that you haven't seen in a long time or if ever. All along that vein, I was reading a thing where people were like, uh, Olivia de Havilland and Joseph Cotton together again. And I was like, man, I work in film history and even I wasn't like, whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) That's because you've seen them before. My favorite is, okay, we're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. The Olivia de Havilland interviews are amazing. So are the Jack (laughs) Lemmon ones. That's right. Olivia de Havilland, Jack Lemmon, like Christopher Lee. We're going to get into it. Is there such a thing as too many disasters? Not according to the folks behind the mega-hit Airport, who followed it up with Airport 75, then today's Airport 77, and then the Concorde Airport 79. I don't just mean this has a lot of franchise installments. I mean the amount of disasters that befalls this single plane and the frankly bananas star-studded cast is truly astounding. And thus super fun to watch. I think all of us were on board with this one, yeah? Sure. Yeah, yeah to some degree. It's more, yeah. more or less. It, it's, uh, yeah. I, I had a great time. Great moments. Yes. And, and mm-hmm. definitely the disaster is like, what? <laughs> yeah. no, it just, I like the transition at the very beginning where you're watching the terrorist get dressed. You're like, I'm sorry, sure. why am I watching right. this in a two and a half <laughs> yeah. hour long movie? Oh. Um, Cam, did this fly with audiences of the day? Was it fly now? What do you think? Yeah. Oh, funny. Uh, uh, you're welcome. It, it did kind of. The weird thing with the airport series is like Air- airport 70 uh the original just airport is kind of a like prestige movie like it- it's uh based on these books by arthur haley who is known for a novel style which i think doesn't exist anymore industrial procedural <laughs> novels where it's just like this is how a hotel works this is how a hospital works huh. um and that's kind of what airport is about that's why it's called airport and not airplane is it's uh yeah but he also did write zero hour that airplane is a ripoff of so hey 
you never know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting because that movie made the most money of the series. Uh, it is diminishing returns in a weird way. But this one still made $30 million on a $6 million budget, yeah. uh, which is great. So yeah, it, it's it like... $91 million worldwide is what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. Like the, the original airport made $100 million in its entire run, which is like, that's crazy. Uh, that, yeah. That's pre-Jaws. Um, that's like over... I did the math on this. That's over $500 million adjusted for inflation. That's wow. crazy. <laughs> I really put I in the work, it. guys. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, Thank that, you. You, you did. That's much more work than I would ever bother. I have a calculator on my computer and everything. And that's why you're here, season <laughs> five, episode one. Yeah. Thank you, Brandon. True. Uh, um, it is interesting. But yeah, they kind of say that it that it wasn't that they're, as much as I think people see, especially the Concorde, is like a big dip in quality. It is just more that audiences did kind of slowly get tired of this and it, and it started making less and less money. But it was a huge hit. And it is, I think, 77 might be arguably at least the most fashionable group of actors. Like, you are getting the most actors that are significant at the time um, compared to some of the other movies, which are a little more full of dusty old skeletons. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it, it did fly. Do you want me to, to go into this weird plot? <laughs> yeah, go into the weird plot. Okay. Good luck. Yeah, Good okay. luck. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Uh, listen, it's a, the, the basic thing is there is a very fancy private plane owned by Jimmy Stewart, uh, a billionaire industrialist slash art collector slash car collector slash everything. Uh, and it is just going on its maiden voyage. Uh, and there is a planned heist. We actually start with the heisters, as Becky said. Uh, it's obviously why you'd heist this plane. It's full of rich people. It's uh, full of art, full of cars. Essentially, the heist goes wrong. Uh, the plane, uh, everyone's knocked out. The plane crashes into the Bermuda Triangle, which is like not important. <laughs> not at all. For some reason, for some reason, it's like in the Bermuda Triangle. And it hits an oil yeah. derrick. And actually, the special effect yeah. is pretty good when it hits the oil derrick. I was like, on a big screen, this would look great. Yeah. Again, it's like this. This movie has those procedural elements too, where it's like you definitely feel like there was a writer's room full of weird technicians <laughs> that are like, well, this is the kind of disaster that would happen. And, and the whole thing, as well, I'll get into it. But they claim that the rest you is like a theoretical that would go on to actually be used but um yeah so anyway it hits this oil derrick the whole plane sinks to like the bottom of the ocean uh, but it's pressurized so everyone's alive so they kind of wake up and they are underwater uh and then it is it is less about the disaster and more about uh the the rescue of these people in this plane and how it's going to work uh the the bad guys had turned off their transponders so there's also a bit of like how will they find the plane that one would think that a oil derrick that got clipped by a plane <laughs> might phone in and say hey a plane just crashed a couple <laughs> miles away uh come on out uh but anyway that that's about it but we're following all these characters of course uh jack lemon is the pilot he's sort of the hero somehow 52 year old jack lemon is the hunk of this film uh, um, i concur that he is in fact the hunk of this <laughs> yeah film. i can as well he really sells it i mean it's it's the mustache that does a lot yeah. of the yeah. heavy lifting but I, I think he really does sell he's it. also he's got a, that jack lebanese devil may care and him and is it brenda mm -hmm. it's brenda vocaro that he's in a relationship yeah. yet with like i yes. actually buy that relationship even though it's like a december may relationship yeah, i listen, still buy it. i buy that relationship the thing i don't buy is he's like baby i want children and it's like you're you're 52 <laughs> she's 38 yes yeah. so funny yeah. i was like i think i'm ready to settle down and start a family <laughs> he's a high-flying <laughs> pilot in the age when pilots were just you know 
know, the, the rock stars yeah. of the sky. Like, that's what it is. Yeah, but what, yeah. okay, fine. I, I can buy that. But what at 52 made him <laughs> be like, all right, now is the time. It's yeah. the sultry yeah. tones of Brendan Beca- Brenda Vaccaro. Yeah. That's what it is. And it wasn't, he wasn't passive about it either. Yeah. Like, he was very, no. very, <laughs> like, he was very adamant that he was like, no, no, no. My time is now. Yes. And now I'm kind of reaching that age where I want to settle down and, uh, you know, have kids. And Why can't we just keep it the way it is? No, 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 no. Because I want a wife and children. And he's very specific about children, where it's yeah. like, to adopt children? <laughs> Question mark. Uh, yeah, a very weird one. And I will say, watching, I watched a few others because I'm just, a, a, I have no life. Uh, and, and I think other movies, yeah, you can see the ones that kind of wrote the roles for 30-year-olds and then cast 50-year-olds. And the ones that wrote, like, oh, we are a thrice-divorced couple who is, like, <laughs> thrown together. You're like, yeah, that's that's what these people should be doing. Uh, but yeah, they're in it. I mean, I guess I don't know who, is, who else is interesting. I love M. Emmett Walsh is a veterinarian who's the only medical person on board. Which, by the um, way, was he, was M. Emmett Walsh ever young? Because no. he <laughs> is, he's 10 years younger than Jack Lemmon, and, like, he still mm-hmm. looks, I mean, he, he looks better than he did in, in you know, later it's years, of course. It's the but, same yeah. as jo- Joseph Cotton, which is wild, because I, I feel sure. it's because he is ubiquitous. Like, he just yeah. didn't stop from, like, the age of 20 onwards. He is cinema history. Yeah. And so I think you mm-hmm. kind of, like, grew with him, that he's always kind of looked the same, because you always mm-hmm. see him. I, yeah, Joseph Cotton also has the weird, like, he's almost doing, like, a mid-Atlantic accent. Like, his, his accent is not an accent that exists outside. <laughs> of old movies <laughs> so yeah I don't, it's, it's interesting because yeah we do have all these older people but they're all pretty yeah when the young people are like christopher lee and emma walsh and i mean lee grant is there she's doing her, her 70s thing uh yeah it's weird and it's weird because I, I don't know none of these character arcs necessarily amount to anything other than jack lemon and brenda vaccaro really you're just supposed mm-hmm. to care about it but i mean this is why it's so smart to cast all of these people who you would be familiar with because you don't sure. need anything more than like oh this people these people are in love but because they're famous character actors you know exactly who they are right yeah like, they're like kathleen quinlan and uh the blind <laughs> piano players like tom okay Sullivan. i guess <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And they, let's talk about the blind piano oh, player sure. for a second and the fact that they're totally going like the poseidon adventure ripoffs here are not so aside from the fact mm. the plane is underwater, <laughs> it's rapidly filling up. So people are going to die from drowning. Thank you, Christopher Lee, for your presence. Um, mm. You've also got this attempt at another Oscar nomination, like The Morning After from Poseidon Adventure, mm. with Beauty is in the Eye of the Beholder, which is being sung by a blind man as he gazes straight ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, a, really, a really weird one. And I guess, so the other thing with this movie that is wild to me is there the there's like... They knew that it was going to be on TV. This is also worth saying that, like, this is kind of like the peak almost of disaster movies because they were becoming such a regular staple of television. There was these event, there was this double event called Flood and Fire <laughs> that had like Ernest Borgnine on TV around now, and and but they knew this would air on TV. So there's 70 minutes of extra footage. So I think a lot of the plots that aren't fleshed out, they said Kathleen Quinlan and this guy get like a whole extra kind of storyline in the television version. Oh, yeah. I want to find. Uh, which does make sense, but also, can you imagine watching 70? Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, I mean, I guess I didn't get into it, but this movie is somehow all that happens and it's still like a snail's pace. And like you say, the only good stuff is weirdly the hangout stuff. And like Mm -hmm. the best scene is the weird almost totally throw away Lee Grant maybe maybe not you guys don't agree but like Lee Grant Christopher Lee and that other guy who I think is from Battlestar Galactica have like a love triangle I have uh, a mini margarita 
and a teeny martini. Aren't they cute? It's just about your size, Martin. Oh, I forgot about that already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much going on. Like, like, yeah. There's like a like uh, Olivia de Havilland is like an art industrialist uh, fighting with art critics in a poker game. Like, what? What is any of this? Well, she's well, Shelley Winters, right? Like, a hundred percent. This yeah. is just emulating yes. Poseidon Adventure. Sure. Well, while we're on the subject of an additional 70 minutes, I wonder if maybe you can give some context to, or if you have any information about, I feel like there's an unexplored relationship between Olivia de Havilland and the character Dorothy, played by Mady Norman. Yes. What is the story there? Because I know that there's a New York Times article that says that, that claims her to be her maid, mm-hmm. which is that, I don't remember that ever actually coming up in the movie. There's nothing that ever, that, I wonder if they just said that because she's black. Um, yeah, I, I think yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> also, that's, yes. that's really what it came across and as. And also, unfortunately, she gets a seemingly brutal death. But I do, I yeah. do. Uh, my understanding is that, yes, the, the 70 extra minutes uh, does build their relationship. And I think that it's also that Mady Norman, like, saved Olivia de Havilland's life or something in a previous, like, they they have a very close relationship. Yeah. Right, because the like we're, we're spoiling things, right? Yeah, yeah oh, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, if people want, there is no, there's no such thing as a spoiler change here. People are going to die. Just to make fine. sure. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't had the chance to watch it now, yeah, yeah. by now. Um, but yeah, when when Dorothy dies, it's a really big emotional moment. I would say probably Olivia de Havilland's best acting moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of based around like nothing at all because you're kind mm-hmm. of like, what is their relationship? Yeah. <laughs> you saw Dorothy get on the plane, uh, lose to Pong to a bunch That's of right. children. <laughs> she acknowledged yeah. Dorothy when she got on the plane. Yeah. That was about it. Uh, yeah. That's the very weird. Uh, yeah. This, this tries to have some black stars, but it doesn't do very well by them either. Cause the, I believe also the 70 minutes, uh, props up a bit more the the bartender whose who wife is, is pregnant mm. with chil- like yeah. twins or something like that. Yeah, the, yeah. she's going into and labor think, any moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he gets like his leg crushed. I don't know. It's it's there's also um I will say that a lot of people talking about the more expanded plot. There is a novelization that is one of those <laughs> I think classic novelizations that's based on the script that did not make it to the screen. Yeah. So right. I, I I will say I'm not I I'm never sure what is the seventy minutes and I don't even know how you see those 70 minutes it's worth saying i i don't know that there's a uh, a like a blu-ray of there's the TV gotta version. be like a german dvd that like yeah, included yeah, it as an extra right. it's always german <laughs> so. well i guess Deal should we boss. pause and then uh read the novelization and watch the german <laughs> yeah, version and then we'll come be right back, back and finish this episode <laughs> yeah. Yeah. exactly and it ends up the we'll gremlins right are all aliens yeah i know uh-huh. i feel like that's a possibility though because like this reminds me so much of the second season of american horror story where there are like it's mm. evil nuns and it's aliens and it's a serial killer and we don't know how we're gonna end this and like right. it just it one of these things has got to stick, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. And I will say, it's weird how that doesn't work here. And I find that a lot with these 70s disaster movies is like, you would say like, oh, it's getting crazier and crazier. But for some reason, this one front loads its craziness because you're like a heist on a plane. I love that. Like, yeah. I, like I love Air Force One. Mm. But then that is done mm. like 30 minutes in and then it becomes, right. it turns into uh, like what I would call like the Thunderball problem of it's so much scuba footage. Yeah. Like so <laughs> much real time scuba diving. It's uh, true. And, and it's that the rescue stuff is so boring and for the most part, not our people. Like, yeah. um, I watched a good one, which I'll shout out here, called The Cassandra Crossing, which is 
there, there's rescue stuff, but for the most part, it's about the people who are stuck in the situation trying to figure out what to do next and like the, the interplay dynamics between them. And that makes such a difference because it's like, why are we like they're very proud of this naval rescue when you watch the promotional stuff, but it is just boring. It's that. Well, and I mean, you look at the seriousness, like Jack Lemmon actually went and flew like prototype flight simulators to learn how to actually fly a plane. And you see him do it for what, a minute yeah. and a half, maybe? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that does really, I mean, his commitment does come through. Yes. Like, mm. through, like he really does feel committed. He feels, he seems engaged. I don't think he's uh, ever he's like, phoned in a role in his life. I'm trying to no. think of no. anything that And he even in didn't. this one where he was like very, I think he was uh, very vocal about the fact that like he only took this role because his last role was a disaster. And he thought yeah. that his career was over. And he basically told his agent, he was just like, give me whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just gotta I will stay take on the screen. It. And then he said after, he was like, yeah, that was a big mistake doing this. <laughs> yeah. But you don't really see it. You don't feel that when you're watching him in it. Like, he, he's there. He doesn't, uh, yeah, he's not phoning it no, in at all. yeah. I agree. Everybody, and because I was kind of like, who is the biggest get? Because I think Jimmy Stewart's a bit of an odd one to get. Uh, but he's kind of phoning it in. He's having a bit of a quiet Oops. role. The answer is definitely Emma Matt Walsh. No question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think to me, I think it's Lee Grant. Weirdly, she and she has the is, weirdest role. So I think she's in this dissociative state, kind of like Kate Capshaw in large swaths mm. of Temple of Doom, because sure. she talked about how she's like, I do not like planes. I well, yeah. do not like water. I do not know why I'm doing this. <laughs> like she did almost yeah. drown in one of the water stunts. Like she <laughs> hated this so much. Yes, very funny that behind the scenes documentary, she is very good. <laughs> she <laughs> she's she so seems funny. like why. Are you here? I just like you did shampoo a couple of years ago. You could do whatever you want. Totally. But yeah, I like that. Your fa- my favorite thing with that Jack Lemon stuff is he referred to this film as a cartoon, <laughs> which I enjoy. He's like, I, yeah. And I mean, the I other way like that's being too generous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he. Uh, the thing that I love too is like his comeback after this is a disaster movie. It's China Syndrome, so it's wow. like, yeah. Yeah, you, weirdly, I don't know. And yeah, like you say, everybody is doing a good job. I think it's just, and I think we'll get into it maybe a little more in the next one too, that what what kind of ruined this genre, I think, is that they started giving it to directors who are just TV jobbers and writers who are just like weird technical. Like a lot of these writers, their only writing credits is like Elevator or like uh, there's one about a gondola that's like stuck. Right. Uh-huh. And it's like they, they took the guys who wrote the TV movie movie disaster movies and they're like well you can do this so it's like there's just not like these aren't based on the arthur haley novel you know for the most part Mm -hmm. um you're you're finding stuff like that and i think yeah you know airport poseidon adventure those are based on books poseidon adventure i will also say is a real ripoff of the uh old titanic movie uh from the 1940s it's like it it also has a priest who has given up his priesthood who then like survives the titanic it's like oh hmm which Um, none of that is the problem though no exactly and so i i just think that like i wish that somebody was ripping off other airplane disaster Steal novels. from I don't the know. best, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They instead get obsessed with uh, what I guess is the equivalent of 1970s special effects. Uh, and and the, the effects are fine, but uh, it's just boring. I mean, the big, yeah, the, the biggest mistake this film made, I think, was was hiring uh, Jerry Jameson, who is clearly just, like you said, it's a, he's a TV director. He's a journeyman. Yeah. The directing is just so hacky <laughs> and so uncinematic and just like every shot is just 
kind of boring to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank God that he has like you know <laughs> good actors doing the heavy lifting because oof, left to his own devices, he uh, yeah, yeah. would have been in trouble. Well, going into the history of this, because I was like, okay, so we start with these like airport disaster movies and hijackings and things, and so many of them involve hijackings. And I was like, how often were hijackings actually happening? And of course, it turns out a lot because it was between 1968 and 1972, 130 plus U.S. Pl- U.S. planes were jacked, and they were like, oh my God, how do we stop these? jackings from happening and they weren't going <laughs> Jack to exactly no 100 but here's the thing is like even time magazine has this amazing article about if your plane happens to get hijacked you're just going on a trip to cuba and you're gonna have a lovely time mm-hmm. try the rum here's the restaurants you want to go to and then you'll have a story and like swear to god that's what it yeah. is because all of them just wanted to go to go to cuba and fly to cuba and it got to the point where they were throwing around ideas of what they could do to kind of deter this and like stop these so they were like maybe we just build a fake Havana Airport in Miami and we'll just have them fly there and they think they'll land (laughs) landing in Cuba. Uh, Not the case. Um, But yeah, of course, all this ended up happening uh, and ending when someone actually did die horribly. But until then, it was kind of considered like a fun cocktail story of like, yes, we were uh, we were jacked at one point. Um, But it's just so interesting to me that like they never thought of just checking bags like that didn't come along. They're like, we can't inconvenience people or else they'll take the bus. Yeah. And I mean, we grew up in oh yeah the weird time where like we still have to take our shoes off in spite of the fact that the one shoe bomb they <laughs> caught, caught and it failed. was so obvious <laughs> <Yes>. yeah <laughs> and and i think wouldn't have worked yeah i don't know it's a yeah it's a weird time but uh, yeah I, I guess it's just there's no this is also not like an Irwin allen one not that i think that Irwin allen was always good but there there was no no heart behind it anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that one thing that would have would have helped it is if uh, it sounds very macabre to say, but I kind of wish more people died. No, for sure. Uh, yeah, they're yeah. like they're like the actual crash sequence. I think is actually, despite like I said, <laughs> despite what I said about Jerry Jameson's hack direction, the uh, the actual crash sequence is quite good, uh, and there are some like kind of moments of like visceral violence. Like I think there's that one moment where somebody gets crushed by the uh, uh, by the dining cart. Uh, that was mm-hmm. pretty oh, yeah, good. Oh yeah, yeah. It's I watched uh, the first bit of uh, Earthquake, like the actual Earthquake uh, of Earthquake, and that is brutal. Like, again, killing yeah. children, like mm. dogs dead. It's everything that could possibly go wrong is going wrong. Like, it, yeah. And that's kind of what you you want. Like, we're going to talk about roller coaster in a second, mm-hmm. and I feel like the yeah, first yeah. roller coaster incident there is brutal. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. you want that for two reasons, because, yeah, it's exciting for, you know, a big chaotic mess of violence to happen during these moments. But also, it's just because not enough people died, there were just too many dud characters yeah, still sure. hanging around yeah, on the plane. Yeah. There's too many kids on that plane oh, that I at do least not one, care like, about. Give us one child death. That's <laughs> yeah. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> we're also getting into the, like, the end of this era. Like this is like we have like up until 81 is really when they stop and everyone's yeah, like, okay, hey, we're yeah. over this. And like this is also the year of Black Friday. We considered pairing that with, mm-hmm. with one of these two. And I watched it and I was like, oh, this is bananas like aside from like a total yeah. weird Bruce Dern going off the rails as a, a, a disillusioned veteran terrorist uh, mm-hmm. who's collaborating with this Israeli terrorist organization it's really just again these long talking points mm-hmm. and the because you're the thing about that one is that they kind of make you sympathize with the terrorists 
mm-hmm. then you have this whole segment where they are flying a Zeppelin into the actual Super Bowl, which is being filmed at that time. And they were able to, like, pause the Super Bowl to get their movie done. Thus is the power of Robert Evans. But, like, they really are ending – like, it's like how much bigger can you get aside from, yeah. like, a blimp into a Super Bowl before you just have to stop, right? Like, what else are you doing? Yeah, and I think that that's what kills Erwin Allen is he just – they run out of ideas, to be honest. And like I say, truly, they're – yeah, fire, flood. Uh, well, I'm trying to look at the, the other weird ones uh, that happened this year. The Swarm is well worth people's time just to watch clips. Number one, oh, for yeah. watching Michael Caine's histrionics, utterly adorable. And number two, for mm. the line, bees, bees, millions of bees. That's yeah, pretty great. Yeah. <laughs> and they have like, uh, yeah, SST death flight also this year. <laughs> flight to Holocaust. Oh, my the, God. the one I tried to watch, which is also like proving that this has gone too far, I think, is there's a movie called Catastrophe that is a documentary that's just made up of actual disaster <laughs> Faces footage. of death for you yeah, know, the 70s you're crowd. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is ghoulish. It's just on YouTube. Uh, it's bad. It's fun because it has, you know, I, I think it's the guy who played the fat man and Jake and the fat man being like, fire. Man's mortal enemy, but it's, yeah. <laughs> you're you're immediately like I'm sure audiences in 1977 sat down to this and were like gross. <laughs> I don't I don't want to watch this. No, no, it's something you'd watch if you were drunk and it just happened to be on and you fall asleep halfway to it, right? Like that's what it's there yeah. for. All right, well let's get into a smaller scale disaster that's no less more disturbing. It's roller coaster coming up after the break. Cam, you know one of the reasons why I love working for Hollywood Suite? The money? <laughs> the money. The money is obviously number one because I have a very tiny dog no. who likes very fancy things. Sure. And, and that costs some cash, let me tell you. I think the biggest thing is that I just love how much care and attention is put into the curation of what goes onto the channel. Uh, you and the other programmers do such a great job of finding a huge variety of content that a lot of people haven't seen before. As well as, you know, the classic blockbuster favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the funny thing is, is you start this job and you you think like, well, what does it matter that somebody gets to see the Warriors or something, Escape yeah. from New York, these big movies. But then uh, when you look at the landscape of, of cable movies and streaming movies, uh, just so many of these classics get lost, even the big boys. And like, forget about, uh, you know, discovering black directors of the 1970s, trying to put a lot of women directors forward. There's all, all this kind of wealth of material that has yet to come out. And it's always very satisfying when we can get something on the air that we are surprised uh, connects with people. Yeah, I found a bunch of movies and original series and uh, exclusive series that I've connected with, and I know our listeners are going to as well. You can subscribe to Hollywood Suite through your TV provider, or you can go to Amazon Prime channels and you can subscribe through that. That's what I do. And if you want to find out more and have a look at listings, you can check out hollywoodsuite.ca. Okay, let's get back to the show. Of all the ways we get our thrills, roller coasters are supposed to be one of the safest. Sure, there are occasional incidents, but in general, when you strap yourself in for a ride, you're signing up for all of the thrills and none of the risk. Unless, of course, you end up in a situation like one in 1977's roller coaster exclamation point, which you never would. And when Hollywood came a knocking to some of the biggest theme parks in the world with their disaster premise, that's where things got wild. This is not a good movie, but it is super fun. Uh, Brendan, this is one you got excited for when I mentioned that we wanted to talk about it. Why do you love Roller Coaster? 
<laughs> Thanks, Becky. I do. I do love roller coaster, despite a lot of uh, <laughs> it's so much uh, a lot fun. of evidence in the contrary. Um, it's incredibly fun. Um, to summarize the plot, which oh, this will be like the shortest plot description ever. <laughs> yeah. Timothy Bottoms plays a terrorist who doesn't really have any clearly defined motivations. No. Uh, seemingly, just hates roller coasters. Uh, he sets up. He's a weapons expert. I guess you assume yeah. so because he seems to know how to make a bomb, but you don't really have any further evidence of it. No. He sets a bomb in a roller coaster at, I believe, uh, Virgin- Norfolk, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, and blows up a roller coaster again for no apparent reason other than screw you roller it's coaster. It's money, isn't it? Like uh, that was to prove yeah. his point so he could get not money. Not at first, though, is it? No, I, I, I think wrong? at first he just blows them up to yeah. scare people. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it, it, it does kind of go into like a, into a money plot. But at first, yeah, I guess that's what sets off the the panic. Uh, then that brings in uh, George Segal, who is the who's investigating this. Uh, there's also a great device where he's trying to quit smoking, <laughs> which actually ties in really well. Well, really well, somewhat well to Airport 77, because Darren McGavin is also has Wait, the same Darren kind McGavin, of device. the old man himself, is also in it, too. It's very hard to take yeah. him seriously. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So George Segal is a safety expert for <laughs> amusement parks. Yeah. Uh, which is an amazing sentence. Uh, and he gets put in charge of tracking down this terrorist. Uh, it turns into a kind of cat and mouse game, which, by the way, is what the director said about this film. Um, mm-hmm. Director James Goldstone said this isn't a disaster movie. Uh, it's more like a cat and mouse story, uh, you know, inspired by Hitchcock. Uh, we can talk about that if uh, if we agree or not. <laughs> you also keep um, watching him get more and more adamant about that as, like, the trailer plays louder and louder. Disaster! Disaster! <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. And it kind of does play out like an investigative, kind of like a procedural, mm-hmm. um, until we get to a big... Big finale at a roller coaster park where sparks are performing. <laughs> uh, that's about all I got yeah. for now. That's that's it, man. Yeah. yeah, and I do. I think I agree. Let's go right into that uh, procedural thing because the weird thing is with this movie is there's like kind of three disaster sequences, but for the mm-hmm. most part, it's more of a. For me, it's like it's like kind of like taking a Pelham one two three or yeah. weirdly almost French Connection. Sort yes. of, because it's like he's this rumpled <laughs> whatever. He might be an insurance adjuster, too. I think we're never really fully <laughs> given in to his job. But he's like, yeah. yeah, it's like somewhat comedic, except for the horrible disasters and murders. Uh and tense. It's got yeah. the same vibe I found, and, and I don't. I'm sure you guys have seen this of the original, the town that dreaded sundown, which is like horrible, oh, yeah. horrible murders. Sure. It's a guy in a dress, <laughs> like you yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. a wild vibe. Yeah. yeah, he's well. George Segal is so fun to watch because you're right. It's not. This isn't a comedy, but George Segal is such a such a wisecracker, and uh, he's just so fun to fun to watch. Um, kind of going through again the uh, like him going. You, you get introduced to him going through conversion therapy, yeah. on how to quit smoking, <laughs> yeah. and I feel like from that moment you're like, oh, I like this guy. <laughs> yeah, and he's quippy too. Like it's nice because they, they also mm. uh, in any of the other movies you have, you have angry. Like usually people are angry. They're smart. They're they're in a, a disaster, life or death situation. So there isn't a lot of time for quips. And this gets mm-hmm. quippy, which is different yeah. from any of the other ones I've watched. Harry, I'm sorry to bother you. Then don't. Why do you talk to me like that? Because I don't like you, Sai. After tonight, I may return the favors. 
Yeah, and he's he's also hyper skilled, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. like he is borderline like the Sherlock Holmes of this because he realizes something's happening. Like he he knows that that there's a terrorist before anyone else. Yeah, you really get the impression that like he is the only person qualified to do this job, possibly mm-hmm. in the world. Yeah, and I think that that's why it becomes the interesting cat and mouse too, because Timothy Bottoms eventually becomes just obsessed with him, kind of, yeah. and and messing with him. But again, yeah, the the probably the great weakness of this film is it seems like it's going to set up that he's like a disenfranchised Vietnam vet or something, but it, it well, never. That's what I was yeah. waiting for because the disenfranchised Vietnam Vietnam vet is in like everything else. Like that's Black Sunday. That's yeah. in everything else, but it's not in this one. Yeah, I don't I mean, think I, there's a seer. I don't think there's a single character arc in this entire film. If you really think about it, so, and I, I mean, mean, and I want to maintain I really like this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. like a lot of the characters but there are when, no yeah. art no when when we talk about like the hangout part of 77 that part sucks whereas the hangout part of roller coaster is great and then there's a couple roller coaster disasters you know like it has kind of a laggy middle but like the first roller coaster crash is amazing it's real good and and then that last yeah is good yeah that that whole scene is really like i think it's an all-timer honestly um Mm -hmm. that's whenever i have people come over i think i feel like i've watched the film a few (laughs) times but whenever people come over i've watched that first scene probably like a at least like two dozen times uh, i love to just be like all right strap in you got like yeah. eight minutes watch this scene you're gonna love these it. guys are they the, always the bodies fly like it literally yeah. you're watching bodies, bodies fly out of it it's crazy yeah the uh that one car that actually like flips upside down and crashes upside down like it's brutal yeah which, and apparently it's supposed to be more brutal i think they filmed it to be like a much more violent movie and then ended up cutting back on it because they didn't want to go for an r rating uh, i would love to see that cut <laughs> yeah i mean it's yeah it is interesting too because it's like it it is you can tell that this is not like uh it's not a b movie but like it's not it's not the A disaster movie because those effects are are a lot shoddier, but they work. Like the brutality of it, like the the most brutal is like a, a car just flips over and smashes the obvious dummies, but you're still like you're like yeah. wincing, even though none of it looks like a human being. Uh, no, it's, but it's yeah. yeah like- the editing is like is mm-hmm. perfectly constructed like it it's just like it it all works and i think it's really like kind of the antithesis to like airport 77 where i said that like the biggest uh, uh the biggest failing of the film is the shoddy direction here mm-hmm. i think that's kind of the secret weapon is that james goldstone really knows how to keep things moving and despite like you said it's got a very kind of like dull there's some like dull moments and it kind mm-hmm. of like just is just spinning its wheels for a while in the middle but James Wilson always keeps things moving. And uh, I feel like it's very, very cinematic. Uh, his use of all those point of view coaster shots, totally yeah. thrilling. I love all of that. In terms of like the hangout stuff, even like when there's nothing really happening, when it's just like George Siegel, like, washing his car uh, it's great like I love hanging out yeah. with it I think we would talk about this movie more however this was released directly after Star Wars was and Star Wars just completely decimated the field for anything that would come afterwards uh, Cam how big a deal was Star Wars when it came to changing the game at the time yeah I mean Star Wars is a it's interesting because it's kind of now like covered in myth and stuff but there was a pretty good rundown recently uh, what Star Wars did that totally like flipped 
um, people. And and I think it makes a lot of people think that uh, Fox didn't believe Star Wars would do anything. And it's true that like their big uh, their big film of the summer was actually a long forgotten uh, disaster future movie called Damnation Alley that like <laughs> no one has seen, starring Jan Michael Vincent. Uh, but uh, it's uh, yeah, Star Wars. The weird thing is, it's released in kind of May, but it is an incredibly slowly platformed movie. It starts in forty theaters and it doesn't go wide until July. So it is just like this growing movie. Um, so I think the thing is, is, it just takes up so much box office space and and theaters which would put put other movies are just hungry for star wars and demanding star wars and people want star wars uh and i mean there's also smoking and the bandit at the same time yeah. which is kind of insane so i think that it just like it's funny uh, the, the, there's a guy like writing out like this is the here's the movies that everyone thought would be huge at the box office and it's like a bridge too far which did do pretty good exorcist 2 of course people thought would be huge new york new york sorcerer uh, oh massive and, massive flops we're gonna get into new york new yeah, york later yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like yeah the thing is is just stuff took up real estate but then you also had weird stuff like the deep which is the other peter benchley movie which i think is widely considered terrible but it did quite well uh because it's just like yeah then you were programming against star wars so basically everything that was a big blockbuster um kind of lost out and i think that any movie house that was like a single screen wanted smokier star wars and you're just like mm. which are both unlike anything else right because you think of, of mm-hmm. star wars being like this soap opera epic and then smoking in the bang bandit is like the goofiest hangout stunt movie i love the idea mm-hmm. of like the most expensive special effects studded movie and then a bunch of cars crashing into each other where the number one and yeah. number two movies is just <laughs> yeah. but they're so it, different yeah. than anything else right everything else was a huge downer in oh, the late sure. 70s and these are both joyous and super fun right so obviously yeah, yeah, they yeah. were ready this is also what killed disasters is i mm. think that exploitation turned to smoky and the Panda and star wars yeah, I totally agree. And uh, and I think that since you brought up Sorcerer, I think uh, I should mention that William Friedkin really, I think, said it best when he was you know talking about the failure of Sorcerer, is that when he was making Sorcerer, and I think a lot of other films can stem this as well, um, audiences in the 70s, they didn't really care about like who was good, who was bad. They just wanted like, you know, interesting characters. And uh, there was, you know, it was okay to have them be kind of like murky. But then when Star Wars came out, that really changed the game and audiences wanted nothing other than just heroes and villains. And, you know, this is what the bad guy is. This is who the good guy is. The good guys have to make these big heroic gestures uh, to be likable. Otherwise, the movie's going to fall flat. And I think even though there is sort of an element of that, there's a good guy and bad guy thing in this, there's nothing particularly heroic about George Segal's character. Like, he's just kind of a a guy, like, doing his job. That's really all it is. Um, And I think that maybe if this came out earlier, people would have been more into that. But Mm -hmm. with Star Wars... That's just not enough for audiences anymore. Yeah, and I do think that there's the weird, like, it still has the real downbeat 70s ending of just, like, yeah. him walking away. And they even set up, like, the the weirdest part to me of this film is they set up, like, uh, his daughter, Helen Hunt, in one of her first roles. Baby Helen uh, Hunt, they, yeah. Yeah, they set up her being like, I want to go to the amusement park. And you're like, oh, God, she's going to fall into the plan. <laughs> and then it's like, I don't even know if George Siegel realizes they're at the park for the entire movie, nor the bad guy. They're just watching Sparks. And then it's like, you, th- you think you, you like it would end with her being like, daddy, or something. And it's like, no, not really. 
It's more the like, you know, sad whistle music. Yeah. <laughs> well, he off. watches a man yeah. get taken out by a roller coaster. Like, know, that would be a yeah. horrible <laughs> thing to happen. But, but that's also, it's like not a triumph necessarily. He's kind of trying to save the guy yeah. and the guy just gets killed. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of like, yeah, the weird kind of downbeat French connection ending uh, is very 70s. And, and the other thing is like, it's worth saying that I don't know about Burt Reynolds, though his movies were always kind of that way. But like, that was a self-conscious choice by Lucas, who was, was like, I think people are tired of gray morality in movies. Mm-hmm. And that's why he became obsessed with, like, Joseph Campbell, because he's like, yeah, I, I think people just want uh, easy, like, easy, good, bad, black, white. Right. Um, and, yeah, th- he was right. <laughs> but this is, uh, I mean, <laughs> blowing up people is pretty bad. And yeah, George, <laughs> J- we all understand trying to quit cigarettes, right, guys? So, sure, uh, yeah, it's instantly yeah. relatable. <laughs> being, di- being divorced, having a hot younger girlfriend, uh, <laughs> it's instantly, yeah. And, and I also think it's worth saying, uh, Becky, I, I don't have the names in front of me, but this is written by the guys who created Columbo. And Murder, so, She Wrote. Yeah, Levinson and Link. And I do think that this is a lot better written than a lot of... Uh, disaster movies and that's why i think it functions like you say as as the kind of cat and mouse yeah and why the hangouts are good yeah absolutely it's really just it's obvious that there's basically like 45 minutes worth of plot they're like we gotta stretch this out all right so (laughs) really was anyone here how long can we get away with watching george Siegel wash (laughs) his car but was anyone here really for the plot when you can have the sense around experience Oh, we're going to talk we about sense around? We got to get in sense around. Yeah, and Brendan, why don't you tell people what sense around was and why uh, we need I to have it back? Need... Oh, I would definitely re- re- like defer to you to fill in the to fill in the blanks, <laughs> but uh basically this was one of I think like four films uh starting with Earthquake, I believe. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. And uh that basically were delivered to theaters with this new you know, this this hot gimmick where basically I guess the the easy way to say it is that they would be delivered with intense subwoofers that would mm-hmm. give a very bassy experience to the sound and essentially kind of pull off the same thing that like a deep box experience does now, where mm-hmm. instead of having it uh, installed in a specific chair, it would be these deep bass speakers in the theater that apparently just obliterated some of the theaters that they were in. Full structural Uh, damage, yeah. 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 Uh, Would send these, like, you know, deep, bassy rumbles, uh, and it would make the, you know, roller coaster or any kind of action sequence um, a little more immersive. Uh, That was the idea. Yeah. No, that's exactly the way you put it. And it's um, audible and inaudible tones at 120 decibels. So they're giving you the the shivers. It seems more inaudible. Weirdly, the movie I remember that kind of did this was... Gaspar Noe's Irreversible <laughs> plays a played a inaudible tone, which uh, was made to upset your stomach. Oh, uh, yes. Um, which, like, you don't have to do that, man. We got the movie. Yeah. We got <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I, I like uh, reading about sense around. I mean, I you know me. I, I'm fascinated by gimmicks, and I'm like, Tiff, yeah. do a fake sense around version. But, uh, I would I, love that. Yeah, I love the the best like complaints are uh, that Earthquake came out the same day as Godfather Part Two, and people said that if you went to Godfather Part Two in the theater, <laughs> you just heard because <laughs> yeah, of course, like mul- multiplexes were fairly new and they were not built to uh, dampen sound or anything, and yeah, 
It's, I would probably be on those people's side. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. That would be very obnoxious. How many long, quiet stretches are there in Godfather 2, too? It's like, that's that whole movie is like contemplating a lake. <laughs> I'm just picturing, yeah, Frito in the boat. And just yeah. <laughs> Your tummy starts uh, getting upset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, and I mean, it's funny because it's like, I can absolutely relate because if you're too close to the Marvel movie, when you're watching something else in any cineplex in Canada, you're getting that sound. Mm -hmm. So we haven't come very far, have we? <laughs> yeah. Shout out to that time we saw Paddington 2 together. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I can't remember what was beside us, but Paddington It was one of the Marvel movies, probably yeah. a Thor, if I had to yeah, guess. Yeah, maybe a Transformers. Gets a I don't know. Up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this had a soundtrack that was the first one that was specifically written for Sense Around. So unless you have Sense Around, you're not getting the full experience. Like, this was right. curated for that. But this is also the last Sense Around movie as well, where they were like, okay, abandoned. Yeah, they closed up shop after this one. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of experiences, I want to get a little bit into the actual theme parks in the movie here. And this is Universal, so it's kind of weird that they wanted to do a roller coaster project. So often they were tied to, like, some sort of um, ride experience. Like, Airport 77 had a stunt show at Universal. So, like, mm -hmm. this one, too, it's like, well, how do you kind of build off that? And, I mean, they're already going to different theme parks. And these are, like, some of the biggest theme parks in the world, like like Ma Magic Mountain Six Flags. Um, the Ocean mm -hmm. Park one is interesting where you see the first uh, the first roller coaster happen, and I'm a sucker for amusement park history. And this gets wild because the rocket is the the roller coaster they're on and uh it wasn't destroyed for this one but it was destroyed the following year for a playboy backed movie called death at ocean park where wow. they had to, they needed to it to be destroyed so they tried to blow it up at key points three times and it still didn't go down and so eventually they had to get bulldozers to literally tear it apart <laughs> and that's the only way they could get it to go down so oh obviously excellent structural integrity but i love that mm -hmm. they went to all of these different theme parks and were like so we want to make a movie where we're just going to, you know, threaten all of your guests <laughs> and we want this to look good. And they took it to King's Dominion. And according to um, the guy who was like the general manager of like the King's Dominion franchise, he took one look and went, are you guys crazy? Like no one is going to say yes to this, but let me have a look at the script. And he said he made some changes, which you do actually see in the movie. He said that they were trying to make theme parks look already extremely unsafe. Like all of the workers on it were like dead. Uh, derelicts who were drinking on the job and like of course these things were going to go down and he was like uh, no, we have kids, but the kids are extremely well-trained and we have actual safety officers and things like that, which does actually make it more more frightening than the idea of like these rampant carnies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, that, do you? Okay, so let me ask you a question that on, on that because one thing that really struck out watching at this time was going back to that first scene, uh, which we all love, the operator of i think it was the red rocket ride remember the old guy who was crying at the end yeah he gives such an emotional performance and it's really good i don't i didn't get his name i didn't recognize him or anything it's a very small role but he's so good and you really get the feeling yeah. that like this is he is dedicated <laughs> to this job so i'm wondering was that an addition by the that's by probably the an addition by the amusement park guy he's uh, actually bravo. he is in they the movie i don't remember where he is i think he plays the manager in the movie but he's mm, actually yeah, in the yeah. film yeah yeah, though I do like I I love uh, like Toby Hooper's Funhouse. So part of me yes. 
wishes that this was just the sleazy and you do see like during that like roller coaster crash you see them cut to like a hoochie coochie dance girl and you're sure. like yes this is what i want but yeah, uh, yeah. there's more freak show stuff that would <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like Welcome. sleazy but yeah i love that and that's kind of the great columbo writing is when they're like he's like he saw this guy and they're like oh yeah that guy talks to his wife every day and george siegel's like oh is she no longer with us and he was like he was never married <laughs> like, he, he's not so crazy he's talking to a ghost he just made up a lady he's talking to i love it great writing great writing this is one of the definitely one of the classier versions of this and it's um uh was produced by jennings lang are you guys familiar Mm. with much of jennings lang's work Uh, no i looked him up because yeah he he's interesting because he uh like worked with the the kind of early exploitation Clint Eastwood stuff and then went on to do like Airport 75 and Earthquake. He kind of became the other Irwin Allen and maybe the classier, better Irwin Allen, arguably, uh, except I guess he didn't have Towering Inferno under his belt. <laughs> but yeah, he, he's kind of interesting. And these guys, the team behind Roller Coaster weirdly goes on to work with Irwin Allen. Uh, they kind of get minted as like the disaster guys. But Becky, I'm sure you want to tell the insane story of Jennings Lane. I do. Uh, do you know this story, Brandon? You must know this no, story. With please. Joan Bennett? I, with I Joan, okay. So uh, before he was a producer, Jennings Lang uh, was an agent for MCA, and uh, Joan Bennett was one of his clients. And Joan Bennett was married to Walter Wanger, who was another director-producer who uh, was rapidly going off the rails with alcoholism. He was basically living off Joan Bennett. He could not, like, uh, he kept trying to declare bankruptcy, and then people were like, no, we don't believe your bankruptcy is real. And like, like, just like bringing him further and further into the hole. And so really, Joan Bennett was like the only thing he could cling to. And he was convinced that Joan Bennett and Je- Jennings Lang were having an affair. And like, there was no evidence they actually were. They were just uh, like, they were going different places together. They were at parties, always seen at parties together. They stayed at like a resort in like Florida, things like that. So Walter Wanger got into his head that this was happening. He confronted them in the MCA parking lot and ended up shooting Jennings Lang in the crotch. Uh, he <laughs> He then went on to have three children, which is fine. But Walter Wanger went to prison for this. It's a whole, it's a, it's a whole ordeal. This is all profiled in a really solid uh, Vanity Fair podcast hosted by Karina Longworth and uh, Joan and Walter's granddaughter Vanessa Hope, uh, called "Love Is a Crime." Totally worth your time and just a wild story. Oh, One I of those great it. guys where you like open his Wikipedia and you're like, "Wow, this is weirdly long for a film producer." And shot in the crotch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. and it's, this is all like before this time, but yeah. Yeah, he he produced both of these films, right? He's a yeah. seventy-seven and a roller coaster guy. So it's like, yeah, what a what a wild career. You don't get careers like that much anymore. No. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I think my favorite part of this movie, though, which is it's so cinema verite, is I love all of the pictures of people. I love all the people, like, just hanging out at, like, these these amusement parks in the 70s, which you know are real people. Like, they're just there. Mm. I love the point of views watching um, the people at the front of the roller coasters, and that's where that's where mm. you actually get to see people of color. There's a, there's a, a black yeah, couple yeah. and a Chinese couple, and it's, it's really nice to get to see this, like, very eclectic humanity on film this way. Yeah, and I think that's all. That's obviously all, all by design. Like I, I know that like the the cops were like there are real cops playing cops in the movie. Mm. Uh, I assume that like most of the uh, you know amusement park staff and yeah. uh, the visitors were all like real people. Uh, yeah, it really does give like an I don't know an air of authenticity to it. I love yeah, that. Yeah, it's 
and that's like what you want out of exploitation, right? Like yes. it's always like I, I we're all kind of the the sickos that <laughs> are like, well, this movie was bad, but man, the the street scenes in L.A. where you know they didn't get a permit and they're just filming. Yeah, well, we're gonna be <laughs> talking like yeah. for that stuff. Yeah, we're gonna be yeah. talking about outrageous later in the season, and that's one of my favorite parts mm, is when they true. pan across all the gay the the members at the gay club there, and I just I'm yeah. like, look at all these people, these real people, yeah. just watching. I love they're, it. It's next level when it's Canada too, yeah. and you're like, oh my god. Thank God Samuel Hung made this movie in Edmonton so I can see. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so obviously the one thing we haven't talked about is the musical performance and Sparks, question mark. Brendan, do you have strong feelings about this? I, I do. <laughs> uh, I am a, I'm a huge Sparks fan. Um, I know that they, I don't know if you saw the uh, documentary, the Edgar Wright documentary on no. Sparks, but uh, they were, I don't know if they actually addressed it directly. They, they, they covered a little bit of this, but essentially when they were asked what their biggest regret in their career was, they said appearing in this film. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Not Gilmore Girls? <laughs> Which is <laughs> kind of surprising because, yeah, you would think that this is like just weird enough for them to yeah. love it uh, because it is. It is incredibly weird that they're in this film. Um I don't I don't think it was the producer's first choice. It was um, not. The Bay City Rollers was the first choice, which makes all right. the sense in the world. Followed by I think Kiss. Uh, but then Kiss did uh, Kiss was already signed up for uh Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, which was gonna be a Six Flags Magic Mountain thing, which is also right. a wacko movie if you have a chance to watch it. Yeah. Oh, and then and then of course that's where they end up with this, but like Sparks, like how thinking of how many bands that on that scale, like the Bay City Rollers or Kiss or whatever, then you go to Sparks. <laughs> Bay City Rollers also makes sense that, like, Helen Hunt wants to go see the yes. Bay City Rollers. Kiss odd. Sparks way off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kiss, I guess, kind of makes sense because they did yeah. have a pretty rabid fan base. But, I mean, like, watching the crowd scenes in those the Sparks performance, and there were just, like, families, children, <laughs> adults. And, by the way, in the middle of the day, like, who booked yeah. this concert? Why was this, why were they performing at, like, 1 p.m.? Yeah. Uh, and, like, people were just, like, going apeshit for them. Um, what were, I guess, I, I say I'm a big Sparks fan, but I guess I'm not, full, I don't fully understand what their fan base was like in 1977. It's Different from uh, what it is now, for sure, because if you look, it's, like, much more, like, even the song is much more, like, glam metal, hair rock. Yeah, like. and the lead singer looks so much more like a traditional rocker yeah, at that true. point. Yeah. I, I truly looked like I was like, wait, was it a different lead singer? <laughs> yeah, but no, it's like, it's oh, no, he just looks more like a regular. Russell. Yes, and uh, and it's also funny how, uh, is it? Russell is a piano. No, Ron's no, a piano. No, Ron is right? a piano, yeah. He looks miserable. You can tell he hates <laughs> yes. in this movie. He, There's he, even yeah. shots where it looks like they were like, oh, is that just the best thing you could find? There's shots of him where he's not yeah. even playing piano. He's just sitting beside the piano looking yeah. miserable. And then all of a sudden, like... Which I don't know what exactly sparked that. Like he, what sparked that? Uh, but he all of a sudden just started smashing his piano on stage, yeah. which I don't believe. Again, I I can claim ignorance to some degree. I don't know what their shows were like here, but I don't think part of their act was him smashing his piano. Yeah, though. I yeah. There's also the weird like that era of like uh, th- like L A. L A. Kind of had the performance art rockers of like Oingo Boingo and stuff. Like mm-hmm. I know. There, there was some. It's, it's the thing where people Theatrics. are like, "You'll, you'll never understand this band because you weren't like right. in whatever grim bar." And yeah, so I wonder. I don't know. Well, and, and as like, someone, yeah, 
As someone who saw them in Toronto less than a year ago, I can confirm no pianos got smashed <laughs> at that concert. True. <laughs> Two Jack Skellington-looking guys probably aren't going too wild. I am yeah. sure, though, that it is um, a music label thing. Like, they had some sort of tie to Fox Music in the mm. music label, and the music label was like, you're in a movie, and they're like, are we? It's like, yep, show up Tuesday. <laughs> you know, get yeah. ready to do I mean, a show. Like, I watched the movie, and I'm not even, like, it doesn't, it, I mean, the way that they shot it is very bizarre. Like, it's not It's not exactly Stop Making Sense. No. Uh, they barely even show the band. You can, like, the audio is wild. You can barely even hear their music. Yeah. But it's not uh, one like song. The, it's two. That's what's wild yeah, about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's also, like, that is the soundtrack for arguably the climactic tense you know, mm-hmm. like it is Sparks, which is also kind of wild. Yeah. That's again why it's like, it's certainly you must be vaguely proud of this because yeah. you're like you're like part of a yeah. It's kind of cool. I know. I know. Even even Edgar Wright on his Instagram one day, I think somebody asked him about this, and he's someone who I don't think is I've never heard him say anything even remotely negative about a single film. Even mm. he was like. It's all right. Which yeah. I feel like in Edgar Wright speak is like saying, this is a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think this is a lot more fun. This is definitely like your party movie. You need to watch it with a bunch of people and it's goofy sure. and in the background yeah. so you can like chat. But And then stop and be like, I'm sorry, what just happened? Like that's the that's the kind of tone of this movie. Yeah. And more. Yeah. And I mean, R, like R.I.P. George Siegel. Uh, yeah. He's great. Yeah. He's not phoning it in this, either. This is so a, good. Yeah. And such an unusual performance for him, I think. that Yeah, he's got plenty of classic comedies, but this is really something else. I would also argue that, like, Timothy Bottoms, which uh, I think Gene mm. Siskel's called one of the dullest villains imaginable, <laughs> which I kind of get because, no. again, going back to what we were saying before, there's no real motives. Like, I guess the big mm. problem with this movie is, like, what's this guy's problem? Yeah. Uh, but still, the fact that, okay, I guess we should, if if we can, talk really quickly about how there was a lot more meat to his character initially. Yeah. Uh, and this is really funny. Apparently, there was kind of an abandoned plot about him avenging his parents, sort of a, they own like a mom and pop amusement park that got <laughs> run out of business That's by amazing. theme park giants, which is so cool. And I kind of wish it was still in the movie. But they basically abandoned that whole thing because they didn't want to make him, you know, too likable mm. out of fear of like not making him just like a monster. But that was the issue um, with Black Sunday where apparently right. they were, they, people were really pissed off. He got, Robert Evans's family got death threats because they were like, you're mm. trying to make us empathize with these terrorists. So it must have been fear of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah mm. That would be, that would be it. Uh, but as a result, it kind of just ends up being I don't know, sort of this, like, almost like if, like, Michael Myers was in a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm leaving it at that, at that note because it's not going to get any better than that. Cameron Maitland, yeah. welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. And, and I do want to say that if anybody wants another 70s George Siegel thriller, uh, the Canadian movie Russian Roulette, he plays an RCMP officer. <laughs> It's kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and we got Elliot Gould called Us Vampires. Thanks, Elliot Gould. And mm. Brendan Ross, thank you so much. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for uh, helping us inaugurate the fifth season. Thank you. It's an honor to be in the in the first episode, and uh, it's always a joy to hang out with you, too. You want to tell people a little bit about how they can find out more about you and your excellent programming work? Sure. I run uh, Neon Dream Cinema Club here in Toronto. Um, you can find... Instagram is the best place to find me at the End Dream Cinema. Uh, and yeah, that's where I post most of the stuff. So 
give us a follow. Come see me at the uh, Review Cinema Monthly. I also highly recommend, even if you're not in Toronto, check out the posters that Brendan has made for all of these classic films because uh, they are amazing. We have an amazing team of creatives who still work for me, um, and I'm amazed <laughs> that they haven't left me behind as they've gone on to much bigger things. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and you can join us in two weeks where we are entering the world of 70s Hollywood divas. It's The Turning Point and New York, New York, and we're going to be joined by Hollywood Suite's very own Alicia Fletcher and the dumpster raccoon himself, Anthony Oliveira. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies and series that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton. Senior producer is Becky Shrimpton, and co-producers are Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. And today, featured Cameron Maitland and Brendan Ross as guests. Supervised producer is Emily Gagne. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.